At one time, we thought civilization had finally achieved world peace, that the days of constant warfare and conquering and death were behind us. Then World War I happened. Then we said that's enough, that the bloodshed was too great, that we would never let such a thing take place ever again. And then there was World War II. And once again, we said the cost is too high. Civilized countries such as ourselves should not allow such a slaughter of life ever again. The days of one country invading another country to conquer it, those are finally behind us. And then, just earlier this year, Russia invaded Ukraine. When will wars and rumors of wars finally end? Well, if you read your Bible, you know the answer to that question. They won't. In 1969, the great American philosopher Edwin Starr, he posed this question, war, war, what is it good for? And the answer is that it absolutely is good for something. And you'll find out what that is today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and peace lover, and so for all of you peace lovers out there, I have some bad news today. But first, we'll start with some bad news from yesterday, uh, many yesterdays ago, back to June 28th. 1914. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, they were assassinated in Bosnia, setting off a chain of events that led to a massive war that drew in many European countries, as well as Russia, the United States, the Ottoman Empire, as well as some Middle Eastern, African, and Asian countries. This lasted for five years, with the peace treaty finally being signed, actually five years to the day, on June 28, 1919. The war was so massive that it became known as the Great War, and later, the war to end all wars, with the idea that it was inconceivable that a military conflict on such a massive scale could ever happen again. And that idea turned out to be wrong, as within a couple decades, the world was at war once again. Today, we know these conflicts as World War I and World War II. The body count of World War I was around 40 million. For World War II... The number of deaths was estimated to be 70 to 85 million. It was the deadliest conflict in human history. Never again, we said, as we stood on the ashes of Auschwitz and Hitler's Third Reich, never again, we promised, creating alliances like the United Nations, the European Union, and NATO in order to prevent such a catastrophic bloodshed from ever taking place again. And yet, that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that World War III if we haven't had it yet by the time the seven-year tribulation kicks off, that it certainly will come with the tribulation. And we are back in Revelation 6 today to talk about the second horseman of the apocalypse, and that's the pop culture name for this figure, who appears as the second in a series of four, well, it's actually seven, actually it's 21, judgments that God unleashes on the earth in the tribulation period. And the first four of these judgments are popularly known as the four horsemen. And we'll be talking about the second one on today's episode. So kind of like last time, I'm going to start by reading the two verses dedicated to describing this horse and the horseman, and then we're going to break down those elements of what's going on here. So Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, they say, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. 
its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So today we have a red horse, and it's said that he takes peace, and then the people of the world begin killing each other. He himself is holding a sword. So early on in the tribulation, right after the Antichrist takes control, war breaks out across the earth. Now we'll talk about why war breaks out in a minute, but first let's just establish that war breaks out. I often call this judgment the war horse. And the word war doesn't actually appear in these verses, but I mean, I think it's pretty clear that this is what it's talking about. That That's why the horse is red. Red is a color that's often associated with warfare and bloodshed. And I think the, the reasons for that are kind of obvious. But there's also the obvious symbolism of the sword given to the rider. It said peace is taken from the earth, that people begin killing each other. So any peace or stability that the Antichrist offers whenever he assumes control, it's going to be very short-lived. It's not going to last. Now, I mean, whether that's a week or a month, you know, who knows? But the peace and safety that the Antichrist offers, it will not last long. The second judgment that God unleashes on the world, it's an outbreak of world war. So actually, there you go. That's an explanation of Revelation 6, 3, and 4. And we got that. We got through that a lot quicker than it took us to explain verses 1 and 2 last time. The symbolism here, it's just actually a lot plainer and easier to understand than something like the bow with no arrows from the previous horseman lesson. A sword and taking peace, I mean, those are almost self-explanatory. Let's instead focus today on some reasons why war might be breaking out. Uh, and there are some future wars that are prophesied in Scripture but they have never taken place as of as of now, as of 2022. But they could fit into this timeline quite a bit. So um, first, let's talk about uh, let's let's deal with a question first. Actually, that a lot of people might have regarding the Antichrist: Why would there be a war or a conflict on the Earth when the Antichrist has been given explicit control of the Earth back in the first judgment? After all, we read the Antichrist. He's he's given a crown and he's essentially made king of the world, right? So if he's king of the world, why are the nations battling each other? So let's talk about that. Um, because Bible prophecy teachers, kind of like me, <laughs> we kind of flippantly throw around phrases like king of the world, or we say the Antichrist is given control of the world, or that the whole world will follow after him. But we don't always explain exactly what that means. And I try to qualify this a lot, but I I'm sure I'm guilty of it too. Sometimes we just kind of throw that out there. We don't explain what that's going to look like. What exactly will it look like when the Antichrist is given control? So I think to understand that, let's just look at what it looked like when there were other people in history who we said ruled the world, like Nebuchadnezzar. He and his father built the Babylonian Empire, and a lot of times you'll hear Bible teachers refer to it as a world empire. Now, when we say that, a world empire does not control every single country in the world doesn't even have to control most of the countries in the world. It just means it's like the dominant nation on the planet and that there's just no country who can realistically stand against it. So if you look at the size of the Babylonian Empire at the height of its power, um, it, on a worldwide scale, it really just controlled this big section of land in the Middle East. Now, that was a strategic zone of the world, significantly strategic. Uh, it was the center of three continents. But I'm just saying it's not like it covered the whole planet. And and we refer to it sometimes as a world empire because there was at one time in world history where it was so big, so mighty, so dominant, no other country really stood a chance against it. Nobody else had a, had a hope of overthrowing it, you know, until someone did. 
like the Persian Empire. The, and then they became a world empire for a while. And then Alexander the Great came through, uh, you know, a few hundred years later. He came through with the Greeks, and then they became a world empire. And you could have realistically called Alexander the Great the king of the world. You know, he never had sovereignty over the whole planet. It was just the Greek Empire. But that Greek Empire was massive. And then the Roman Empire after that, it was even more massive. The Greek and the Roman Empires, they went across three continents. So to be a world empire, that's a phrase that just means, you know, you're such a big player on the world scene. Nobody really messes with you. Nobody stands a chance against you. It doesn't mean that everyone's just going to bow down and just do whatever you want. A lot of countries resisted the tyranny of a world empire and they fought back and they just generally lost, you know, until somebody finally won. But that's what it means whenever you're a world empire. It's a temporary status and people keep trying to overthrow you until someone finally does. And that's basically what's going to happen with the Antichrist. He is given a world empire and it's something that's temporary. It's only going to last seven years. And then Jesus comes in at the end of that seven years and he wipes it out. And he wipes out every nation that was a part of it. So the Antichrist world empire, it's not just one nation. It's a coalition of nations, and they join together under the leadership of the Antichrist. But it's not literally every single nation on earth. You know, it might be most of them, but it's not going to be all of them. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream of a statue. And this statue, it represents several world empires that would just come and go over time. The head of the statue, it represented Nebuchadnezzar himself. And then the chest of the statue represented Persia. And Daniel describes all the different parts of the statue and what they represent. But whenever he got to the feet, the feet of the statue represented the future world empire of the Antichrist. And it describes them as made of iron and clay. Now, this is not very strong, obviously, the iron and clay. Like if you build a statue, and you make the feet out of clay, that tells you that the statue's not going to remain standing for very long. And this one doesn't. So here's what it says happens to the statue. It's in Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image, which is the statue, on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. And then he says in the next verse, But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the statue comes toppling down because it says it's struck by a stone. And that stone is the arrival of Jesus, the, the, the second coming of Jesus. Um, it's when he returns at the end of the tribulation to take over the whole world. And at that point, the, the world kingdom of the Antichrist is finished. It collapses. But that stone, it said that stone, which is cut out by no human hand, it's talking about the kingdom of God right there, under the rule of Jesus, that kingdom will grow and fill the whole earth. And in the millennium, when Jesus is king, his world empire will truly cover the whole earth, every single last nation. But the Antichrist kingdom, his doesn't. His empire is going to include a lot of nations. It might be most nations, but there are going to remain some nations who resist the Antichrist during that tribulation period. And this is probably related to why war breaks out in the early part of the tribulation, because there's going to be nations who resist the rise to power of this Antichrist and of his kingdom. Some of these nations, they might be motivated to resist the Antichrist because maybe they do see him as an evil ruler, maybe because they recognize him for who he is. And then there's other nations, they might just resist because they don't want to submit to another leader. They just like their own way of doing things. So whatever the reason is, there will be a resistance to the Antichrist on some level, 
even though he's given control of the earth, his control, I think it's always going to be very loose and unsatisfying. The Antichrist, he's just not going to have an easy reign. Um, in fact, I imagine he's just going to be absolutely miserable as he's constantly putting out fires and it's like he never has five minutes to just enjoy being the man in charge. Um, he's so full of himself that he is going to hate that not everybody accepts him. And he will face resistance for that whole seven-year period. However, as you remember, he is indeed given a crown and will go out conquering and to conquer. That's what Revelation 6-2 says. So he's going to win these fights, but he's still going to have to fight these battles all through his reign. So, do we know anything about which countries are going to be in conflict during the tribulation period? Well, there actually are some prophecies in the Bible of different countries who will eventually go to war with each other. And as of 2022, there's some of these wars that have still not happened. So I'm going to run through a few different scenarios. And these might break out at the start of the tribulation, or they might not. <laughs> they could technically happen at any time. But I'm going to throw out some speculation here as to which countries are engaging in battle during the tribulation. And part of this is also, I think, I think it might depend, as far as the timing of these, it might depend on the nationality or the background of the Antichrist himself. So if the Antichrist is European, which is what I think he will end up being, then the Antichrist might have a lot of Muslim resistance, especially if the Antichrist starts off being very friendly to the Jews. That could trigger a massive Muslim backlash. And so perhaps the Muslims fight back and they just get demolished by the Antichrist early on in the tribulation. You know, the, the Muslims make up a huge portion of the world population. And so a lot of people question, like, what is their role going to be in the end times? And it could be that they're just basically taken off the board early, like early on in the whole thing, if they try to overthrow the Antichrist. However, if the Antichrist is himself a Muslim, it could go the other way around. Like, we might be dealing with an Islamic world empire during the tribulation, where, like, the Muslims basically rule the world. And I think that's less likely, but it is a possibility. So a lot of the war scenarios that I throw out over the next few minutes, they are going to be largely speculative. I hope I'm clear on that. Like, they are going to happen, but as far as the timing of when they happen, if they even have anything to do with the tribulation period, I'm just speculating, okay? But let's go ahead and speculate. The first one I want to mention is a very well-known battle. It's the battle, sometimes called the War of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, I think of it more as a battle because as far as as far as far wars go, if, if this is a war, this would be the shortest war in human history. So, and also in my Ezekiel series that I'm doing like on the site here, I'm still quite a ways away from Daniel, or I'm sorry, from Ezekiel 38. Like we're in the middle of chapter eight at the moment. So we won't get to Ezekiel 38 for quite a while. I'm just going to go ahead and give that chapter a brief treatment here. So in Ezekiel 38, the prophet is laying out how a bunch of things are going to go in the last days. And one thing I really appreciate about Ezekiel is how chronological it is. So Ezekiel 37 was about the rebirth of Israel as a nation. And we saw that happen back in 1948. So Ezekiel 37 has been fulfilled and it continues to be fulfilled as more and more Jews return to the land of Israel and as the nation of Israel continues to grow more powerful. And then if we skip ahead a few chapters, Ezekiel 40, that's about the millennium. And from there, the rest of the book of Ezekiel, it's very clearly about the millennium. So Ezekiel 37 has already happened. Ezekiel 40 is clearly in the millennium. 
Like I said, the rest of the book of Ezekiel is so chronological, like perfectly chronological. So I think that means that Ezekiel 38 and 39, if they're following the chronological order that the rest of the book does, then they take place at some point between 1948 and the millennium, which is a broad span of time, but it also includes where we are right now. So th this battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it could technically take place at any moment it might have nothing whatsoever to do with the tribulation, but also it would slot in quite nicely with the beginning of the tribulation. Ezekiel 38 says this, starting from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the, man, of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Tagarma from the uttermost parts of the north, with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. So, this, the, these verses here, they mention a coalition of nations, and they all band together to march against Israel. Now, if you pull out an atlas and try to find where Meshach and Cush and Put are, you know, you're probably not going to find them. That's because the names of these places have been changed like several times in the years since the Bible was written. Like we, we as a human race, we keep changing the names of locations. So if you want to find out where these places are, you have to kind of trace back in history to figure out who it's talking about. And most of them are pretty obvious. Um, Persia, that would be the modern day nation of Iran. Cush is Ethiopia. Put is Libya. When it says Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma, at least some of those make up Turkey today. Um, it could be all foreign Turkey. But regardless, we are pretty certain that Turkey is part of this group of nations that will go down to attack Israel. So those are pretty obvious as far as who they're talking about. Um, Gog and Magog, what exactly is that? Well, Gog is a person. He's the leader of this coalition of nations. So if if the second horseman of Revelation, if it corresponds to any specific person, it's going to be whoever causes the war to break out in the tribulation. So it could potentially it could be Gog. Um, Magog are the Scythians, and they lived in the mountains around the Caspian Sea. Magog as a region, it refers to the area around the Caspian Sea, and, and that includes all these nations that end with Stan. Like if you look on a map, you're going to see Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, all these countries that end with Stan. Those are the Magog. That, that region of the earth would be Magog in modern terms. Um, and Gomer is often thought to be Germany. That one's a little bit, that's a little bit iffy if, if Gomer is actually talking about Germany. So let me get back to the Scythians here. So the Scythians, uh, they migrated northward. And they migrated to the area that is known today as Russia, Ukraine, Crimea. And at the moment, the, like those are some hot, hotly contested territories. You know, if you've seen the news, Russia and Ukraine, they've been separate countries for almost my whole lifetime. But um, but Crimea, that was part of Ukraine up till about 2014. And then like Russia took it back. And I think it was 2014 sometime in the past 10 years, like Russia just took it back. So um, that was, you know, that's kind of a controversial thing. So these, what I'm saying is these areas that I'm talking about right now, these are hotly contested. Like they're, they're still being fought over 
up to today. So any any of these countries could be part of this coalition that goes down to attack um that goes down to attack Israel in the Gog and Magog war, you know, as, as far as when that takes place in the future. It's it's actually kind of ambiguous as to whether Russia is going to be part of this Ezekiel 38 attack because the Scythians actually migrated to this Ukraine area. So, um, you know, is Russia a part of this or not? I tend to lean toward a yes. Um, and I'll explain why in a little bit, but it's possible Russia is not part of this. It could be Ukraine going down there. So we, we're just not really sure quite yet. Let's, we kind of have to wait and see how this war, how all this thing settles down over the next you know year or so as, as Russia and Ukraine are having their fight. Um, in verse 15, though, God says this to Gog, who is this leader of, of that territory. He said, you will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you. So as I read uttermost parts of the north, whenever I look at a map, um, it's obvious when you look at a map, it couldn't be anything but Russia that would make up the uttermost parts of the north. That would have to be Russia, especially if you're looking from, from Israel's vantage point. It's just got to be Russia. But again, it, it could be it could be Ukraine. Russia could be left out of this. But most people tend to think it's Russia. Um, and, and God says this. He says that he draws Gog's attention. So Gog. Now, I believe Gog is like a spiritual, um, what we might call a territorial spirit. Or an angelic figure, a demonic figure, really, who's in charge of the region over, say, Russia. Um, but God's going to draw his attention. So basically, Gog is controlling the leader of Russia. Gog could be Putin. He could be a leader of Russia. God draws his attention, like putting hooks in his jaw and redirecting his attention to Israel and causes him to want it, to want all that it has. And it says that there's a bunch of other nations like Turkey, Ethiopia, Libya, Iran, those countries that are the stands, they all want in on the action too. And and don't forget, over the past decade, Russia has set up shop right on Israel's border. Uh, Syria, it fell to a civil war a few years back. And Russia stepped into Syria. You know, they said, hey, we're here to keep the peace. But um, the interesting thing about that is that they, they pretty much control that country now. Uh, I, I think we have some American soldiers there too. But Russia has got, they've set up shop down there in Syria. So they have control of a country that borders right on Israel. They have access to Israel from the north. Um, but also, their military has been so beaten down by this Ukraine war that if they wanted to make a play for Israel at some point in the near future, that they would need the help of these other countries to be able to do it. So these they would they could call upon these other countries. And most of these nations are Muslim-majority countries. So it would not be surprising at all if if they all just decided to band together to try to wipe out Israel. Like they basically, they don't really need a new motivation. They've been motivated by racism against the Jews f for forever. Um, the president of Iran in 2006, he said, we must rise up as Muslims and wipe Israel off the face of the earth that their name may be forgotten forever. He said that in July of 2006. <laughs> so... And they've made multiple statements like that in the years since. So they don't really need, like, there's no surprising motivation that they would need to attack Israel. Um, Ezekiel 38, it says they'll be after Israel's wealth. Um, so that, but they, they need no motivation beyond what they already have. They would love to wipe the Jews out and, and just to, just to have, just to be done with that. So uh, Germany also, we mentioned that they might be part of this and, it's pretty clear from history, recent history, that they have an anti-Semitic streak. Um, even though they 
have kind of like outwardly, I don't know if repented is the right word. They've (laughs) apologized for World War II and all the damage they did back then. But there's quite a few, you know, anti-Semitic tendencies still up there in Germany. So um, I find it really interesting, though, that of all these countries that they're going to band together to attack Israel in the Gog and Magog War. It's really interesting if you look at the flags of those countries, because almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them use the same set of colors for their flags. White, black, red, and green. You see that repeated again and again in the colors of of these flags, especially these Muslim-majority countries. Pretty much all of them use the colors white, black, red, and green. Um, It's like the Muslims, I don't know, it's their theme colors for some reason. But what's interesting about that, do you want to know who else uses those four colors? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Their colors are the same colors as what are the traditional Muslim colors. So that's always hinted to me that the Muslims, they must play a big part in this aspect of the end times, like this early on. There's something that they're a big part of. So they gather their armies together. However, once they get down to the borders of Israel, the Bible says that their attack fails. The weapons that they fire at Israel, those weapons turn back and hit them. Ezekiel 38, 21 and 22. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So God is the one defending Israel here. And it's not clear to me how much the attack will fail by natural means and how much it will be supernatural. I mean, I know it's all supernatural, but like when it says fire and sulfur rain down on the people, I'm not sure if that means that God is literally going to rain down fire from heaven, like literally, or if it means that they shoot a bunch of firepower at Israel and it like bounces back at them. I'd say it could go either way. A lot of people look at this description and they believe that it's talking about nuclear weapons here, that they fire nuclear weapons at the Israelis and that those nuclear weapons, they just bounce back off of Israel and they bounce back at the attacking armies. And again, I'm not sure how much of this is going to be done through natural means, like, like you know, Israel has their Iron Dome program. I'm not sure how much of it will be natural and how much is just going to be supernaturally by God. And clearly God is the one defending them through all this. I'm just saying to an outside observer, I don't know how much of this will appear supernatural. Um, but here's something interesting it says in in Ezekiel 39, verses 9 and 10. And this is one of those things that hints to nuclear weapons here. It says, Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years, so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forests, for they will make their fires of the weapons. So it says that Israel is able to take these weapons from the armies who attacked them and burn these weapons for seven years. And when I read that, that just sounds a lot like nuclear energy. Like they could go out, they could retrieve the nuclear weapons, and then use them as an energy source in Israel for seven years. Now, why would it say seven years? Well, if this takes place at the beginning of the tribulation, then the world only has seven years left. So that could be why it says seven years. And honestly, I'm not sure. But I think this rules out that it's talking about literal arrows and spears right here, um, that they're not ordinary arrows and spears because those wouldn't burn for seven years. This must mean 
the modern versions of those weapons, things like rockets and bombs, that they would burn for seven years. And, and that could translate very well to retrieving nuclear weapons. It also says in chapter 39, it says that the bodies of the dead will lie there for months and years. And it says that if anybody comes across a dead body, they'll put a sign up by it. Now, what would that all be about? Like, why would they just leave the bodies there? If they come across a dead body, why just put a sign up? Well, if, if the bodies are radioactive, maybe they're waiting for the nuclear energy to subside because it's a radioactive battleground. <laughs> It'd be hard to go in there and clean it up. Like, maybe they put up a warning sign if they find a battle, if they find a body. And the sign is just saying, like, avoid this area, you know, contaminated, radioactive. So a lot of that chapter makes sense if you look at it through kind of a radioactive or like a nuclear warfare lens. Um, and the mention of burning the weapons for seven years, that just slots in very nicely with placing this at the beginning of the tribulation. But like I said, that's speculation. There's other possibilities for when Ezekiel 38 and 39 take place. They could have nothing to do with the Antichrist or the tribulation. Like it could happen this year and the tribulation might not kick off for a long time. So... As I've tried to be clear, a lot of this is speculative, but I'm just telling you things that could take place. Like it, this could slot in when the war breaks out across the earth. Um, let's look at another prophesied war in scripture. And this is the war of Psalm 83. Now, some say that this already happened in history. Others will tell you it's yet to come. Um, frankly, I'm not sure. Uh, I'll give you my thoughts after I read it, but it's, I'm just going to put it out as another possibility let me read Psalm 83, and I'm going to read the first eight verses. Psalm 83 says, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. So what is this all about? I know I read through that quick and a lot of those names, again, they're, you're like, where are those places? What is that talking about? Well, I'll give you the modern, here's what they were. The nations of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, Tyre, and Asher. All those nations, it said, they were surrounding Israel and attacking it. And these would basically be all the countries that directly border Israel. So in modern terms, because that's probably what you're wanting to know. In modern terms, this would include the Palestinian people, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and the Hagrites, they might be the Egyptians. So uh, actually a lot of this area, it includes the terrorist factions that you hear a lot about nowadays, places like Hamas and ISIS. Um, and so in this Psalm, the Psalmist is just basically pointing out this group of nations that are like directly surrounding Israel. And, and he's saying, God, do you see all these people? Like, like what are you gonna do about it? Uh, are you gonna defend us? So it's a prayer for help. And, and like I said, some people think that this already happened. They point to 2 Chronicles 20, and they say that this psalm was written about a battle here. Now, whenever I read 2 Chronicles 20, I don't see all these nations listed. So, you know, I don't know. Like, um, I don't, I, in fact, I don't know if it's referring to one specific battle at all. It could just be a general cry for help 
because Israel was attacked by his neighbors for all of its history. So it might not be talking about a future war at all. But there's a lot of Bible prophecy teachers out there, and they are pretty sure that this is a future battle that hasn't taken place yet. So I'm, I'm kind of personally not convinced, but I'm wanting to just share what a lot of Bible prophecy prophecy teachers will tell you about Psalm 83. And what's interesting about these nations that are listed right there, they do not overlap with the Gog and Magog alliance of nations in Ezekiel 38. It's an entirely different list of nations. So the Psalm 83 nations are those countries that directly surround Israel. And the Gog and Magog alliance, those are the nations that kind of make up the next row, um, the next layer of nations around Israel. Kind of like an outer ring with Israel right at the center. So perhaps this inner ring of nations attacked Israel early on in the tribulation or like right before the tribulation and it fails. And then immediately after that, it's like the next layer of nations. They attack Israel and they fail too. You could speculate all kinds of scenarios, but it's kind of interesting that what I read earlier in verse four, they say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. And if you remember what the recent president of Iran said, I, I gave you this quote earlier. He said, we must rise up as Muslims and wipe Israel off the face of the earth that their name may be forgotten forever. So it's just interesting. One of those quotes was written 3,000 years ago, and the other one was said in 2006. And in a creepy way, they are very similar. Um, but it's also the kind of quote that Muslims say about the, the terrorists, not all of them, but the terrorist Muslims. They, they say this about Israel all the time. So Psalm 83, that could very well be a prophecy of some end times war. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. And then I want to mention one more conflict that the red horse could bring. And this one is prophesied in Daniel 11. And let me just say this about Daniel 11. I love this chapter. I, some people, like they'll do a sermon series on Daniel and or um, they'll be teaching through Daniel and they want to just get through 11 like as fast as possible. I remember I bought this one commentary on Daniel 11. It's like the longest chapter in Daniel. But in the commentary, they gave it the least amount of attention out of all the chapters. Um, which is just such a missed opportunity to me because Daniel chapter 11, it's the most specific chapter on prophecy in the entire Bible. Uh, I mean, there's chapters in the Bible with prophecies that are kind of vague and, and, you know, you can read them and there's multiple ways that they can play out. And we're not always sure on prophecies, what they're going to look like whenever they happen. That is not the case with Daniel 11. It reads like a history book, even though it was written in advance. It's incredibly detailed. Like the non-Christian scholars, they just refuse to believe that Daniel 11 was even written before these things happen because they happen so precisely how it's described by Daniel. But I believe that Daniel was written by Daniel and the angel delivering this prophecy to Daniel, for some reason, he was just extra detailed on this chapter compared to like the regular prophecies that you hear. So let me tell you what Daniel 11 says. So most of this chapter prophesies things that happen between the Old and the New Testaments. And we call this the intertestamental period. And they mainly concern an ongoing feud between Egypt and Syria. And this was especially concerning to Israel because it's right in between those two countries. And the chapter doesn't usually use the names Egypt and Syria. It says the king of the north and the king of the south. And anybody who has a history book and a Bible, they can tell that this is talking about usually Syria as the north and Egypt as the south. Like this is so plain and obvious as you read through the chapter. 
And it, it makes sense because this was written in Israel. Like I said, Syria is just to the north. And Egypt is the country just to the south. So whenever I say Syria, a lot, sometimes in the chapter it's talking about whoever is in charge of Syria at any given time. Because Syria did not always control Syria. Sometimes it was the Babylonians, sometimes it was the Persians, and, and so on, if you look back in history. So the whole chapter of Daniel 11, it deals with this intertestamental period up until verse 36, from which point the rest of that chapter talks about the Antichrist and the end times. And so I'm going to read about a battle that takes place. And at this point in the end times, the king of the north now is going to be the Antichrist. So at the point of this prophecy, it's during the tribulation, and the Antichrist is in charge of the Syrian land. And it says that Egypt resists the Antichrist at this time. So Daniel 11, verses 40 and through 42. At the time of the end, the king of the south, talking about Egypt there, shall attack him, talking about the Antichrist. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape." So it says right there, Egypt attacks the Antichrist. Like at some point in the tribulation, Egypt fights back. So like I've been saying, just because the Antichrist is king of the world, it doesn't mean that everybody is just happy about it. And just because he's this charismatic leader, it doesn't mean that everybody just goes along with it. However, those who fight back will lose. And it said Egypt shall not escape. But it does mention three other countries here. It said Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And if you look at where those are today, those three ancient territories, they make up the nation of Jordan today. So it says that while the Antichrist fights back against Egypt, he invades into some of Israel's land. That's what it means when it says the glorious land. So many countries are overthrown, but it says Jordan is actually going to be fine. Like the Antichrist is going to attack a lot of countries in the tribulation, but it says that Jordan's going to come out of this okay. Now, why is that? Well, after the abomination of desolation, which is halfway through the tribulation, it says the Jewish people take off running. And the ones who run away into Jordan, they are going to be safe. Daniel 12 says that the Antichrist and the devil, they get really frustrated because for some reason, they can't get at the Jews who are hiding away in Jordan. Daniel 11 says this. Here's Daniel 11:43. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the, also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. So this says that the Antichrist is busy fighting against Egypt and that Libya and Ethiopia, they're helping him out. But then he receives news from the east and the north. So what's that all about? Well, I'm not exactly sure. Um, the, the answer might be in Revelation 16, but we won't go there today. But the point is, we just kind of see here the Antichrist is not having an easy time running the world. He's, like I said before, he's constantly putting out fires. Um, a nation arises against him over here, and he goes to fight them. And then another nation rises against him over there. So he has to redirect his attention somewhere else. And he, like, he cannot get a grip on this whole running the world thing. 
And um, so he's constantly like just getting jerked around from one place to another, trying to get control of, of planet Earth. And it's not working out as easy as he thought it would. Um, he just can't get his arms around this. And why is that? Well, he's unleashed as the first horseman of the apocalypse. But the second horseman is really no friend to him because the second horseman just creates a bunch of chaos on the planet. And the whole time, the Antichrist is just trying to get a grip on things. And the second horseman does not let up for the whole tribulation. The nations of the world will be at each other's throats the whole time. The tribulation starts with war breaking out, and that continues until the Battle of Armageddon at the very end. Psalm 2 seems to refer to this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Psalm 2, it almost seems to be talking there about Armageddon even itself. It says the world falls apart. The nations try to make themselves mightier than even God, and God laughs from heaven. If they won't listen to Psalm 2, maybe they should have at least listened to Edwin Starr. War, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Other than frustrating the Antichrist, that is. And uh, we'll close down here for today, but speaking of classic songs right there, the last time whenever we discussed one of the Four Horsemen, we played a Johnny Cash song uh, that was about the end times. It was called When That Man Comes Around. And he actually has another song about Revelation called It's Going by the Book. And I feel like that song, it couldn't be more appropriate for today's lesson. So we're going to end with a snippet of that song today. Daniel 11, as I said, that was the most detailed chapter on prophecy in the whole Bible. It includes 135 details on past events. And each one of them was fulfilled just as the Bible said it would be. So that gives us a lot of confidence that just as the past went by the Bible, the future will follow along just as the Bible said it would too. Or as Johnny Cash puts it, it's going by the book. Now, I can't play more than a small portion of the song or else I'll get into trouble with, with copyright laws, but I'll just play a brief section today. Tune in next time as we continue in Ezekiel 8 and finish that chapter up. And then we'll be back two episodes from now as we talk about the third horseman of the apocalypse. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that our history and our future is going by the book. There's war after war and rumors of war from the east. There's a rumbling in the ground and they're talking about the beast. Good mothers cry cause the rivers run high with the blood of too many sons. Some people say peace is on the way, but the worst is still to come. Cause the prophets wrote about it and Jesus spoke about it and John got to take a look. And he told us what he saw and it's easy to see it's going by.